I'm Bryce Miller. And I'm Jacob Schatz. And this is Talking Atlas, episode number 150. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Talking Atlas. The fact that I mentioned in the intro that this is our 150th episode has absolutely no bearing on the content that we chose for today's episode, but really, I think that it bears mentioning for those of you who haven't read the title, or maybe those who have, but just want to celebrate with us. Woo! Hooray! We've been doing 150 episodes of this show, and every time we talk about a milestone here, I remember that... If we're just going by episode count, you can't tie that to a time frame because 150 episodes does not mean 150 weeks that we've been doing this show. Because for some reason, for like the first year of this show, give or take, we decided to do two episodes a week, which was nonsense. The best part about it was it was nonsense that we sustained really well. Yeah, we did a good job. It didn't stop because it became untenable. It stopped because we looked at ourselves and said, why should we do this? (laughs) And now that we're at a point in our lives where we are both full-time employed, that seems like the best choice for the long run. I'm quite glad that we're not making two episodes a week, but I'm glad that we're still making episodes. Me too. So now that we have thoroughly set your expectations for something more momentous than this episode, welcome to Most Favorite Cards or as I like to call it, Favorite Cards, Core Set 2019. Whenever a new set comes out in Magic, which nowadays is really, really frequently, Jacob and I tend to give it some kind of generic spoilers episode. And that's all fine. That's all well and good. But the more that we've done generic spoilers episodes, the more we've wanted to branch out and find a new way of discussing all of the cool new hotness that is coming out. Last time we did a chaff chat, I believe. That is correct. And this time we're continuing in the trend of mashing up other episode types with spoiler season. And we're doing a favorite cards episode where Bryce and I have gone our separate ways and come up with a list of a top five cards that we like from the new core set. And we're going to share them with each other and you today. Think of it like we gave spoiler episodes and also favorite cards episodes meld. But just for this one episode, it's temporary meld. Which I think is maybe just Yu-Gi-Oh? I don't know, it's been a long time. I think it's more like we're giving each of our different episode types in turn partner. You're right. Like we're doing functional errata to give all of them partner, so that now for today, we're playing a partner deck that has both favorite cards and spoiler season. What's the color identity of spoiler season? Quick, go. Uh, red, blue, green. That, all right. It's blue because you're learning about all these new things. It's red because you're filled with emotion at all the excitement and cool stuff that's coming out. And it's green because magic has to adhere historically to what makes sense in the game, even as it innovates. You're getting better at improv, aren't you? I'm quick on my feet, okay? Speaking of being quick on my feet, I segue with no relation into, (laughs) hey, You can't do that. I can. It's way funnier than improving a normal <laughs> segue. Don't right. you agree, listeners? You see, can you hear that? That's the sound of at least one person nodding along. And yes, their nod is audible. What are we talking about today? What is a core set and how does it work? 
Corsets are weird. That's actually one piece of news with M19. Corsets are weird, says the headline. Hmm. Magic had a corset for most of its history, but if you're a new player to Magic and you've been playing, say, two to three years, a corset may be an entirely foreign concept to you. Effectively, since Magic's beginning, we were making corsets. For a long time, every other year, Magic would print a corset. The idea of a corset was that it would include cards that you wanted to have present for new players, for standard, or whatever the rotating format at the time may have been called. You want some of those baselines. These are always going to be here, or maybe not always going to be here, but you can get the general idea of what Magic is from these corsets. The terminology that is still bandied around a little bit today is that the corset is the basic building block of what the game is supposed to be. That's shifted a lot in the way that they printed sets, but standard legal sets, as we consider them now, used to be called expansion sets. And I remember that because they used the same terminology for the Pokemon trading card game back when Wizards was still making that when I was a wee lad. Nowadays, we think of the standard legal sets as the core part of the game, oddly enough. But before, they were expansions to the actual game of Magic, which was the core sets. Alpha, Beta, and Unlimited to start the trend, and then the numbered editions, 4th through ninth and 10th edition, and then switching over to yearly editions with Magic 2010. Which is not at all confusing that they went from 10th edition to M10, which means 10th edition was probably like 08. In any case... We had yearly corsets up through 2016. I would say that M10 through M14 were fairly homogenous in that they were highly, highly genericized magic in terms of both mechanics and flavor. There tended to be at least one notable theme, for example, slivers as a returning mechanic for M14, but they were pretty samey. Which, in fairness, is what a corset is kind of supposed to be. It's supposed to be a backbone of generic cards that are functional enough for archetypes to exist in standard. Unfortunately, you also have to sell these sets, so when you tell people that the cards are going to be more boring than usual, it doesn't go over quite as well. And moreover, the cards were flavorfully boring. You only got the most vanilla, and I say that in a flavorful sense, okay, that's confusing. I can't say flavorful versus mechanical because vanilla is literally a flavor. I mean that in the storytelling and world building sense that they were they were vanilla. They were boring. You got cards from Regatha or Dominaria that had essentially no magic flavor tied to them. And in my opinion, that's what made those corsets so utterly boring. Also, in my opinion, as you got to M15 and to Magic Origins, which at the time was, quote-unquote, the last core set, we'll get to that in a moment, you had a much richer experience. Even though the core sets weren't focused on a singular plane, Wizards pivoted and said, let us take advantage of the diversity and the vibrancy of our multiverse to show key characters, to show cool places it's fine if we reference Zendikar and a player doesn't know what that is. In fact, maybe that's even better, because they go, wow, look at all these cool elementals and this earth that is moving of its own accord. I wonder what Zendikar is. This caused an interesting shift for me personally, because I went from never caring about corsets to actually being pretty invested. Then we hit the short-lived two-block paradigm. 
The most notable shift to the two-block paradigm was the change from having a single three-set block to two two-set blocks. But wait, that goes from three sets to four sets per year. Well, we're also axing the core set, immediately after doing two pretty good core sets in a row. Though to be fair, this did make some sense. There were a lot of considerations that went into the two-block paradigm, or rather the two-set block paradigm. One significant element was the idea that core sets were conceived as this is a great intro product for new players. But nothing about the time of year that a core set came out, usually the late summer, early fall, made it specifically the thing for new players. New players are joining Magic every day of the year, and there are sets always coming out. So it didn't really make much sense to attempt to have core sets be the intro product. It was concurrently with this two-set paradigm change that we started to see a greater focus on consistently available intro products, most notably the Planeswalker decks, which continue to exist to this day. Some more of the thought process behind this change was that with enough forethought, it would be possible to get those, I don't want to say generic in this case, baseline cards in other sets, as well as cool reprints in other sets. As time wore on, we found that that wasn't as easy as we expected. With two significant draft environments per year, there was more room for more different archetypes that could seed these much-needed reprints. But even with that space available, some reprints that might be very necessary for standard just can't fit into a set that is being pulled in all of its other different directions. Expansion sets have story needs that they have to attend to. They have character moments that they need to show off. They have specific draft archetypes and big selling points in their mechanics that they need to attend to. And if you're a set designer, if you have to make a choice between this would be a nice reprint for Standard to have and this is going to be something that'll make my set better, you have to pick the thing that's going to make the set better. Luckily, the two-set block whatever paradigm didn't last nearly as long as we expected it to. And we made a shift to having four sets per year, all in their own little blocks, doing away with the block structure and saying, we'll have only big sets. There are going to be four per year. For three out of them, we're going to be on different planes, follow the main storyline, and we can spend as much time on any plane across any number of sets as we feel is necessary. And we're bringing the core set back. The difference this time is that the core set is even simpler than it had been before, at least in terms of mechanics. There are no keyword mechanics that are being brought back, like in past core sets. Instead, we're just sticking with evergreen mechanics, like trample, flying, menace, etc. Another shift is that instead of being completely genericized, or even mostly genericized, like the sets that were set on Chandelar, or that were following Garrick's pillaging across the multiverse, Magic 2019 is following a particular story, but instead of being the mainline story, it follows current lead villain of Magic's rogues gallery, Nicol Bolas himself! That about does it for the background information necessary to talk about Magic 2019. Without much further ado, let's get into our favorite cards from this set. Bryce, please tell me what your number five pick is for your favorite cards from Magic 2019. It may come as no surprise that this card is something that is perfect 
in toolboxes, and it's Elvish Rejuvenator. It's two and a green for a creature elf druid. It's a 1-1. And when it enters the battlefield, look at the top five cards of your library. You may put a land card from among them onto the battlefield tapped. Put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. It's been at least a couple of episodes since I've said this, so let me tell you, I love me some build-around cards. There are a lot of terms. Toolbox cards, package cards, build-around me cards. Generally, they are cards that will search up a card of a particular type. And this card kind of lives on both ends of that idea. It doesn't search your library for a thing, but it does ask you to build your deck in a certain way. It gets stronger if you have built your deck with this in mind. On the flip side, being a 3-mana green creature is an excellent niche to be searchable by a variety of cards. Plenty of green creature tutors find you any creature. They just say search your library for a creature, put it into your hand. Then, for the ones that put it onto the battlefield, 3 is also pretty good. Green Sun Zenith and Court of Calling are both spells that get you a creature of scalable size, and 3 is really easy. There's also one of my favorite pet cards, Woodland Bellwort, that specifically lets you search your library for a 3-mana, non-legendary green creature and put it onto the battlefield. Elvish Rejuvenator is not splashy, it's not going to end any games, but it's probably going to ramp you. If you build for it, it will ramp you in a meaningful way, and it is eminently searchable. All that together, this is an easy number five. I appreciate Elvish Rejuvenator for a very specific reason, and it is a design choice that they've made starting with Magic 2019 that I hope, hope, hope persists into the future. And that is the replacement of searching your library and shuffling with look at the top X cards of your library and shuffle those and put them on the bottom. One of the reasons that I have occasionally looked at modern and then said, probably not, is the constant shuffling that is required from fetch lands. Modern is in a great place right now, and I love watching modern tournaments, but the amount of time lost to shuffling, specifically from fetch lands, but occasionally from other cards that exist in the format, is mind-numbing. Wizards R&D has also looked at the amount of shuffling and said, there is a significant number of newer players that don't know how to shuffle as well, or don't want to invest in sleeves so they have to riffle shuffle everything, and it is a non-trivial barrier to entry for certain players. So, in a set that is very heavily focused towards newer players, replacing elements of shuffling with this look at the top five cards of your library, which is not nearly as much as your whole library, obviously, but it is still a significant amount for draft, and it's a nice amount of cards to look through for a constructed playable card. To me, the clearest points of comparison are with either Farhaven Elf or with Wood Elves. They are both also two and a green for elves that have an enter the battlefield ramp trigger. One searches for a forest and puts it on the battlefield. One searches for a basic land. This being a card that can get you any land, but you can't outright search for it, honestly is probably only slightly worse than those two cards. I guess if you're really wanting for fixing, this might screw you over. But outside of that fact... This is fine, it's different, still okay, and is more accessible to new players. I would be remiss if I didn't also mention, when I'm talking about a modern format without shuffling, Sam Black, a pro player who I love for his outlandish brews that occasionally take the world by storm, 
has advocated in the past for a format that is modern-based, but where every card that says search your library is not legal. It sounds like overkill, but the intent is to get rid of shuffling time in modern. I think there was also a singleton component to it. Doesn't matter. Go look up Sam Black Modern if you want to follow this format that I hope someday someone will play with me. Alrighty, that's my number five. Jacob, go ahead and give us yours. This number five pick should also come as no surprise, specifically because of the last time that we talked about favorite cards, in which I said that two clones is better than one. I'm only picking one clone this time, but I really like clones, so I thought I'd bring that up. It's Metamorphic Alteration. Metamorphic Alteration is one and a blue for an enchantment aura with enchant creature. As Metamorphic Alteration enters the battlefield, choose a creature. Enchanted creature is a copy of the chosen creature. This card narrowly edged out the other clone card in this set, which is Mirror Image. And I guess I probably should have given them the same slot because I'm going to read it off anyway, but here goes. Two and a blue for a creature shapeshifter. It's a zero zero. You may have it enter the battlefield as a copy of any creature you control. I thoroughly enjoy the fact that both of these cards are in this set because they are weird clones. The only thing better than a double clone is a weird clone. Mirror Image is probably better, I think. It does require you to have a good creature out, but Enter the Battlefield abilities are plentiful in standard design cards, so you're probably going to get some significant amount of value from it. I like Metamorphic Alteration because it is only two mana, does require another creature, in fact two creatures to be on the battlefield to do anything, but there is some... Very interesting edge cases that arise by being able to transform something into something else that is already on the battlefield. You don't get your enemy to the battlefield effect from it, but you can turn your small thing into your opponent's much more threatening thing, or vice versa, depending on the circumstance. There's not a whole lot of clones that make me think about all of the different ways that they can be used. A lot of times I look at a clone and say, How can I use this to copy a Grave Titan? And, admittedly, I would love to put this on a 1-1 Soldier Token to copy a Grave Titan. But, I think that there are probably more interesting applications of this. I think that there's some weirder stuff that can go on. Forcibly polymorphing an opponent's creature is another level of utility that most clones just don't have. And that is why I like Metamorphic Alteration, and it is my favorite clone from Magic 2019. It will remain to be seen if it's my favorite clone overall. Probably top five. Another odd application of this card. In most situations, it being an aura is going to make it bad. Because as with every creature aura, if the creature dies, you lose the aura. However, auras are very searchable, and there are a lot of fun things that interact with them. Such as Xur the Enchanter. Xur is a very popular commander. He's one white, blue, black for a legendary creature human wizard. He's a 1-4 with flying, which I always forget that he has evasion built in. And whenever he attacks, you may search your library for an enchantment card with converted mana cost 3 or less and put it onto the battlefield. If you do, shuffle your library. Stereotypically, Xur is a very oppressive commander. People build a kind of enchantment pillow fort that makes it impossible for you to touch them given enough time, and it's not necessarily very fun to play against, unless you are a very particular type of player that I sometimes am. (laughs) However, playing with Metamorphic Alteration as 
any game plan, maybe a primary game plan, makes this a really weird deck. The I'm playing what you're playing deck is an existing archetype, I will say gently. But there's something a little bit more unique about the I'm attacking with what you're attacking with deck. It's kind of Xur Voltron, but it's Xur Voltron that strives to immediately turn Xur into the best thing on the board. And that sounds like a fun take on Xur. All right, that's two down. Bryce, what is your number four pick from Magic 2019? Another huge upside of corsets is that they are an opportunity to print mechanically whatever the heck you want. While you're going to in some way justify a plane that this card can fit on, you are never chained, well, almost never chained, by the mechanics in your set. As we established, this set has no named mechanics, and that actually lends a lot of freedom sometimes. That is how my number four card from this set probably came into being. It's Sun Cleanser, one in a white for a 1-4 creature human cleric. When it enters the battlefield, choose one. Remove all counters from target creature. It can't have counters put on it for as long as Sun Cleanser remains on the battlefield. Or, target opponent loses all counters. That player can't get counters for as long as Sun Cleanser remains on the battlefield. The removal or otherwise prevention of counters is not an overly common effect. There are maybe five or six cards in black that can remove counters. I know for a fact there's at least one card in green that prevents the addition of counters, specifically Mylira stopping poison counters. Less often, though, do we see this effect in white, but it kind of does make sense. It's the kind of imprisonment or balancing out that seems to be in white's color pie at least flavorfully. In terms of setting, Sun Cleanser is clearly from Ixalan. It's very Mesoamerican in its theme. It has a dino in the background. But this card would not have made a great deal of sense in the set proper. There were not a lot of counters except for Explore. So, like, maybe you could justify that. However, it does make a lot of sense with some recent archetypes that might be present more so in Casual now that they've rotated from Standard, like Energy. There's a lot of cool play in there, but we couldn't have printed this card in Ixalan, probably. It reminds me a bit of the card Solemnity from Hour of Devastation. That's two and a white for an enchantment. Players can't get counters, and counters can't be put on essentially any permanent that's not a planeswalker. For the record, I totally forgot about Solemnity. <laughs> okay, so white has maybe at least once before done this. It didn't stop energy, so that's probably why you forgot about it. You're probably right. <laughs> there aren't really any cards like Sun Cleanser that made my top five list, but this set is chock full of very unique designs that maybe couldn't have happened outside of a core set. For that reason, Sun Cleanser is my number four. Jacob, would you mind regaling us with your number four? Oh, indubitably. Funnily enough, I took an almost, not directly opposed, but it's coming from the opposite direction of the utility of core sets related to setting. My number four card I picked because it does something that older corsets did really well, which is branch into different aspects of what magic, lowercase m, is in the multiverse. A lot of times we see magic in magic, capital M, whew, this is confusing, they should have named their game something different, <laughs> as purely combative. You are casting spells to deal damage to your opponent, and 
Maybe sometimes you heal yourself. Maybe sometimes you grow a very nice big tree. Maybe you're summoning a dog. But classic interpretations of magic in the vein of Dungeons and Dragons, for example, have it as just this otherworldly force that you can kind of use for anything. And most magic sets take themselves a little too seriously to branch into the weirder, more comical applications of magic even. But core sets don't have that restriction, which is why Skilled Animator is my number four card. Skilled Animator is two and a blue for a 1-3 creature human artificer. When Skilled Animator enters the battlefield, target artifact you control becomes an artifact creature with base power and toughness 5-5 for as long as Skilled Animator remains on the battlefield. This effect is relatively straightforward, and it's an effect that we've seen in a couple of different places. Tezzeret's had it as one of his iconic abilities, and we even got it separately as an aura in, in Soul Artifact. That's fine, this is probably playable, it's a decent 3-drop. What's most important is that the thing that the skilled animator is animating in his art is a bookshelf that now has an angry face and is wielding a candlestick. And that's beautiful. We've managed to stay in a relatively serious, this isn't cartoonish, mostly, it's a serious image of a wizard casting a serious spell. It just happens to be that he's making this bookshelf real mad and charge at you. Where is this on? Is this on Dominaria? I don't care. It's a corset. We don't have to care where this is from. We're not necessarily beholden to the worlds that we've established. We can make reference to them on cards like Sun Cleanser, and in fact, Sun Cleanser is made a better card because we can tie it to Ixalan. It gives the character that's being illustrated there more robustness. But Skilled Animator's already got character all over the place. Skilled Animator has character to spare. And to be quite frank, I don't know quite of a magic setting, maybe Dominaria, that would fit this particular thing. Dominaria, just because it's that big, and we've got occasional reference to artifacts, and the Tolarian Academy has done a bunch of different experiments over the years, alright, fine, probably, but we didn't need to make reference to Dominaria's history, I don't need to care that this is a Tolarian mage doing this thing, it's just a guy who really wants to make a bookshelf go on a rampage, and that is a family. <laughs> Sometimes that's all a family is, a mage and a bookshelf, that's a family complete 100% tangent. <laughs> Do you think that this card's art is a Beauty and the Beast reference? Oh, I hope so. I have to imagine that there was at least some inspiration drawn from that because of the nature of how the face is like orchestrated on this bookshelf. Also, the shape of the bookshelf for some reason, and maybe this is me grasping at straws, is very reminiscent of the shape of Cogsworth, the clock in Beauty and the Beast. And he's wielding a, like, a candlestick. He's wielding oh my God. a candlestick that is similar to Lumiere in that it has multiple branches. You're totally right. I couldn't articulate that. I was looking at this piece of art because how could I not? And there was something about it that was like, this is old school. This is familiar fantasy art. Where have I seen this before? And it was in a tale as old as time. Song as old as rhyme, etc., etc. Bookshelf and the candle. <laughs> is that how that worked my childhood was all wrong that's how i'm witnessing it right now it's true <laughs> all right 
Well, that's quite enough of that, I think. Bryce, what is your number three pick for Magic 2019? My number three pick is a big stonkin' dino! Yeah! Which is weird for me. It's Gigantosaurus, which I inflected as though I were going to say Gigantosaur, because I was going to, then I remembered I was wrong. Gigantosaurus. <laughs> it is green, 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 green. That is five green mana symbols for a 10-10 creature dinosaur. Hoo-wee! Flavor text. Each tooth is the length of a horse, and new ones grow in every 16 days. Let's take a closer look! Now, the fact that this is one of my favorite cards from this set may give you the wrong idea. I'm not the kind of person who is usually, like, Timmy enough to say, Oh man, a giant creature? I'm on board. A giant creature for 5 mana? Its power and toughness are each equal to double its mana cost? That's weird. That's stompy. Not why I like it. I like this card because of the deck that I once upon a time played in Modern, and that is Mono Green Devotion. Devotion is a mechanic from Theros that cares about the number of colored symbols among the mana costs of permanents you control. A central card in the Modern deck is Nykthos Shrine to Nyx. It's a land, it can tap for a colorless mana, or you can pay two and tap it to add mana equal to the devotion of the color you choose. Mono Green Devotion, unsurprisingly, generally goes for green. And this card gives you 5 green devotion, which probably puts it in the top 10 cards for contributing devotion. I don't know where the deck sits right now. It's probably distinctly tier 2 or 3. That said, this is its second shot in the arm in recent memory, because we also had Steel Leaf Champion from Dominaria, which is green 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 for a 5-3 elf that, correct me if I'm wrong, can't be blocked by creatures with power 2 or less? Oh, and also Steel Leaf Champion is a 5-4. It's a 3-mana 5-4 with upside. Point of comparison, Leatherback Bailoff from Worldwake, which is green-green-green for a 4-5 beast. Steel Leaf Champion isn't strictly better than Leatherback Bailoff, but it's probably mostly better. And Leatherback Bailoff was, at least up until Steel Leaf Champion was printed, a common card to see in some builds of Mono Green Devotion, especially the stompier ones. Gigantosaurus makes my list because I am extraordinarily curious to see if these two cards together can be enough to push Mono Green Devotion higher into the tiers of modern decks. I'm of two minds on Gigantosaurus, and I think one of those two minds is winning. Every time I look at this card, I see it's vanilla. Yeah, it's a it's a 10-10 that costs five mana, but it's it dies to Doomblade, which is a very easy criticism to levy, but I just compare it to Carnage Tyrant that costs more, but is more flexible to cast and survives longer. And, 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 and then the other part of my brain just starts really quietly going, It's so big. Look at how big this dinosaur is. It's a 10-10 for 5. You could cast it on turn 5. It's so big. And if you're playing Monogreen Devotion, you could probably cast it on turn 3 reliably. But that's not <gasps> the point. It is certainly deserving of the name Gigantosaurus, and the part of me that is wholeheartedly Timmy will always love this card. It's awe-inspiring to look at, in a way. I mean, a 10-10 for 5, this isn't even a mythic. This is something that you can print at rare nowadays. That's how good creatures have gotten. You do raise an important point that, yeah, this is a 5-man investment that, like most other things, will die to a lot of removal. Notably, not Lightning Bolt but most other removal. <laughs> Which is why the only deck where I could expect it to get 
any traction at all would be Mono Green Devotion, because where other decks say 5 green mana, that's too hard to cast. Mono Green Devotion says not only is that easy to cast, that is in fact an upside over a card that costs 4 and a green. My firmest guess is that Mono Green Devotion might go from, say, tier 2.5 to tier 2, give or take. But what a glorious tier 2 it'll be. Rar. Oh, I love you too. <laughs> you speak dinosaur? That is an old t-shirt cut. Oh my god. That was a t-shirt that you're referencing? Rar means I love you in dinosaur is... I don't even want to call it a meme. It's because just a it very old early. scene kid thing, I think. All right, I'll take it. While I'm pondering that, Jacob, what's your number three? My number three is also a five mana green card, but it's a common instead. This is Rock's Oracle. Four and a green for a 4-2 creature Rhino Monk. When Rock's Oracle enters the battlefield, draw a card. Flavor text. The further into the future I look, the less certain my vision. Even now, the middle distance is obscured by fire. I can't really nail down what it is about this card that jumped it all the way to three on my list, as opposed to being a humble four or five. Mostly, it's the solid creative work that is being done for this card. The biggest contributing factor has got to be that flavor text. The fact that I had to read it off like that tells you the kind of voice that I'm getting from this card. It's somber... It is very distinctly flavored in the style of the more stoic rocks race from Alara. And I don't know, it's, it's, got, it's got a little something to it. It also helps that I like the rocks. The rocks are a race of rhino people from the Shard of Bant on Alara, and I think we've only seen them there, if I'm not mistaken. We've seen Loxodon, which are elephant folk, on Mirrodin and... Are they really just on Mirrodin? Oh, no, there's some on Tarkir as well. Oh, you're totally right, yeah. Oh, and they're on Ravnica. They're with the Selesny on Ravnica. Okay, so the Loxodon are on a couple of different planes. Still not super common, but we've seen them on Ravnica, Mirrodin, and Tarkir. Whereas the rocks are a uniquely bant creature. As far as I can tell, yes. Every other rhino from other planes is just a rhino, like the bipedal kind. Quadrupedal. That's what I meant. The nor <laughs> the kind's on the four legs. Four legs, good. Two legs, bad. We haven't been to Alara in a while, and every time I see something that reminds me of Alara, I'm reminded of how long it's been since we've been to Alara. It's such a neat setting. I want to see more of the rocks and the rest of Alara. So I'm glad that we got to see glimpses of them as we follow Bolas's story from mere elder dragonhood to planeswalker godhood and back again there's also something aesthetically nice about in magic drawing cards is often flavored as you are learning things green is not a color that short of using its creatures can draw really more than one card from say a creature entering the battlefield so it's very apropos for green's mechanical space and this card that it really only can draw one card, especially for a common. Thereby, it can only learn a little bit. It's having trouble doing even that because the battle against Nicol Bolas is obscuring everything else in the multiverse. It's that important of a thing. Fire! All in all, a bunch of small but nice-to-have flavorful things topped off with that beautiful flavor text. 
And I'm a sucker for beautiful flavor text. Okay, getting on up there. Bryce, what is your number two pick for Magic 2019? My number two pick plays to two things. My enjoyment of flexible removal and my love of, for some reason, artifact creature-centric tribal decks. That is Meteor Golem. Meteor Golem is 7 mana for an artifact creature, Golem. When it enters the battlefield, destroy target non-land permanent an opponent controls, and it is a 3-3. 7 mana is a perfectly fine going rate for nearly unconditional removal. You almost will never want to hit your own things, and not being able to hit a land is usually fine. If someone has a Cabal Coffers or a Valakut, you might get upset, but usually when you're playing your 7 mana removal, you're trying to get rid of a thing that is killing you right now. Going back to my love of obscure tribal decks, especially those that relate to artifacts, I have been wanting to build a Golem deck for far too long. And believe it or not, Golem as a tribe actually does have some support in the form of the Splicers. There are six cards, all of them from New Phyrexia, that have Splicer in the name. There are three in white, two in green, one in blue. All of them create one or more Golems on entering the battlefield, and also grant an ability or plus one plus one to your golems. So my grand plan for a long time has been this. Make a Rune of the Hidden Realm golem tribal deck. Rune of the Hidden Realm can flick your creatures, exile one, then make it return to the battlefield. He plays very well with the splicers, and plays very well with this pretty okay piece of removal. It's not the splashiest card, and there's some joke to be made about a golem making a giant impact crater that isn't very splashy more sooty and gravelly and rubbly. It's not very splashy, but it slots perfectly into that archetype that I have already been pining way too much to build. Would you like to know why I like Meteor Golem very much? Why do you like Meteor Golem very much? Because he's doing the Iron Man landing pose. Oh, you're totally right. And he's an Iron Man. It's true. (laughs) To take a slightly different referential angle, he's going to do the superhero landing. (laughs) All right, Jacob, we're nearly there. Give us your number two. Well, it wouldn't be a top five list if I didn't have at least one position on my list that was occupied by more than one card. It's really true. (laughs) And I have not disappointed this time because there was an arc of three story-based cards that I cannot get enough of, and that is Apex of Power, Fraying Omnipotence, and Patient Rebuilding. Apex of Power is 7 red 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 for a sorcery. Exile the top 7 cards of your library. Until end of turn, you may cast non-land cards exiled this way. If this spell was cast from your hand, add 10 mana of any one color. Flavor text, as I desire, so it shall be. Nicol Bolas. Fraying Omnipotence is 3 black black for a sorcery. Each player loses half their life, then discards half the cards in their hand, then sacrifices half the creatures they control... Round up each time. Flavor text, the great mending that healed the multiverse also unraveled the threads of Nicol Bolas's power. And patient rebuilding. Three blue blue for an enchantment. At the beginning of your upkeep, target opponent puts the top three cards of their library into their graveyard, then you draw a card for each land card put into that graveyard this way. Flavor text, Nicol Bolas would not rest until he was restored to his former glory. These three cards summarize... The motivations for why Nicol Bolas has done everything that he has done in what has currently been written of Magic Story. 
Apex of Power is Bolas at his strongest, a literal god that is able to exert his will on others. Fraying Omnipotence is losing that power in the Mending, and Patient Rebuilding is taking all sorts of plans, weaving them together to eventually reconstruct his godhood by force. One of the reasons that Bolas is being used right now, and one of the reasons that he's been used for the longest time as a magic villain, is because this is a cool and compelling character background. Yes, Bolas is terrible, Bolas is a villain, Bolas makes schemes, but it is all from this deeply insecure place of having tasted godhood and having it ripped away from him. Not only that, but the art for all three of these pieces is gorgeous. Apex of Power and Fraying Omnipotence are illustrated by Svetlan Velenov, while Patient Rebuilding is illustrated by Magali Villeneuve. Apex of Power and Fraying Omnipotence particularly have this bloopy black and blue with red-tinged lightning energy. Apex of Power having it be very structured with blue in the center, black surrounding it, and then the lightning coming in from all sides, where Fraying Omnipotence is chaotic and random. All the different energies are mingling and they are tearing apart Bolas's meditation realm. You can tangibly feel from the composition, from the camera angle, from the diminished stature that Bolas has in the frame, that he is feeling his world literally crumble around him. I further appreciate that it feels fairly clear that these were intended as a cycle, because in addition to having Nicol Bolas in all the arts and flavor text, they are one each in his colors, red, black, blue. There's some part of me that aesthetically wishes this were a tighter cycle, you know, same mana cost, maybe same artist throughout, same card type, quieting that part of me. It is excellent card-by-card -card storytelling. Okay, we are down to the finish line here. Bryce, tell me what your number one card from Magic 2019 is. It will come as no surprise to Jacob, but maybe a great surprise to the rest of you that my number one card from this set is Supreme Phantom. One and a blue for a creature spirit. It's a 1-3 with flying and... Other spirits you control get plus one, plus one. Huh. Most of you would probably ask, oh, are you building some sort of spirit tribal deck and that's why you want this? The answer is yes. But I'm not building it for commander? Um, it's all very confusing. Okay, now I'm confused. I've already mentioned that I did once try to get into modern. And it went okay. My conclusion from that trial run was that modern wasn't super for me. Which makes it all the more vexing that I have been periodically possessed by an inexplicable urge to play Spirit Tribal in Modern. Really? Really. I will again emphasize that the format that I play pretty much exclusively is Commander and Casual Commander variants. I almost never have played constructed formats except for when I started playing Magic and that brief stint of Modern. And yet here we are. This urge, I think, originated with Shadows Over Innistrad. Shadows Over Innistrad had a couple of cards that I looked at and said, these are spirit tribal effects that are, in at least one or two cases, strictly better than a card that is established in modern. A key example that comes to mind is Mausoleum Wanderer versus Curse Catcher. Curse Catcher is useful for its ability to maybe counter a spell, and it's a merfolk, so it's played in merfolk tribal decks, and really nowhere else. Mausoleum Wanderer 
is similar. It has the same effect of being able to counter an instant or sorcery unless its controller pays some mana. For Curse Catcher, it's always one. For Mausoleum Wanderer, it is its power, and it gets bigger when spirits enter the battlefield under your control. Mind, that's not a huge motivator. Oh, one obscure tribal card is better than this other card that is only used in a tribal context? Okay, sure. But that is at least what I think got me that bug of somehow wanting to build Spirit Tribal in Modern. It was seeing Supreme Phantom get printed, and by its existence, allowing eight copies of a Spirit Lord, four of Supreme Phantom, four of Drog Skull Captain, that pushed me over the edge. And two or three years after deciding that Modern wasn't for me, I have started building Spirit Tribal, and it's gonna happen. My silence has been in research of what other tools spirits have, and I was very surprised to find that there's essentially only one other spirit lord. That's Drogskull Captain. Admittedly, it also gives hexproof to all your other spirit creatures, but I was really surprised to find that there weren't that many spirit lords, and a lord is kind of the thing that you need to start building a low-to-the-ground tribal deck. So... Yeah, I could see how this would propel you into really wanting to make this an actual thing, because now it can be. And it kind of makes sense when you think about it that there are only two spirit lords. In fact, I might say it's surprising that there are that many, because at least as far as modern is concerned, very, very few tribes have more than two, or even have two, playable low mana cost lords. It's a large part of what makes Merfolk so playable. Mono Blue Merfolk has eight copies of lords that give plus one, plus one, and island walk to your merfolk. Elves has at least, with the printing of the set, I think two or three in modern, and obscure tribes have nothing, usually. Spirits isn't the most obscure tribe. It's gotten a bunch of support from Kamigawa, then some from original Innistrad block, and then more from Shadows over Innistrad block, but it's still a little bit on the obscure side, certainly. It was the existence of now eight copies of Lords in a modern deck that pushed me over the edge, as well as the understanding that Spirits has a lot of what seem like solid sideboard cards that are thematic. One card that is in my honorable mentions for this set is Remorseful Cleric, a 2-1 flyer for one and a white that you can sacrifice to exile a player's graveyard. Depending on the metagame, graveyard hate can be very important in modern, and there are a lot of cards that are used for it. But if I'm playing a spirit tribal deck, I can have a spirit that is my graveyard hate, which makes my deck that little bit stronger. Okay, Jacob, that's enough discussion of constructed formats. I feel ill. <laughs> you should give us your number one. All right. My number one card is kind of cheating because the thing that I really love about this set is contained in a bunch of other cards, but there's one card that does encapsulate all of that, so I'm going to use that as my jumping off point. My number one card for Magic 2019 is Vivian Reed. Vivian Reed is three green green for a legendary planeswalker subtype Vivian. She enters with five loyalty counters. Her plus one ability is look at the top four cards of your library. You may reveal a creature or land card from among them and put it into your hand, put the rest on the bottom of your library in a random order. Her minus three ability is destroy target artifact, enchantment, or creature with flying. And her minus eight ability is you get an emblem with creatures you control, get plus two, plus two, and have vigilance, trample, and indestructible. This is a fine card. This is a cool new green planeswalker. 
But the most important thing in this set is Vivian Reed's flavor text that is scattered across eight cards, one of which was Gigantosaurus. And all of them have the vibe of someone who absolutely adores that the multiverse is chock full of highly dangerous animals. The best example that I can see is on Prodigious Growth, which is an aura that gives a creature plus seven, plus seven, and trample. The art for which depicts an ant, just a regular six-legged insect, blown up to the size of a house with flavor text, Look how cute it is now! From Vivian. The reason that I love this is not just because I love slightly more irreverent flavor texts that are fun and give an insight to a character, which I do, don't get me wrong, but there's something even more important going on here. Back when we talked through Ixalan's story, and I feel like I'm going to bring this up any time that we talk about character or story for the foreseeable future, because it kind of defines everything that I love about magic story, but when we talked about Ixalan... There were two things that went on with Jace that I fell in love with. The first is that we made him a more interesting and relatable character. That is lightning in a bottle. I don't think that's going to get recreated with the new magic story paradigm. And that's unfortunate, but it's also not something that I'm going to begrudge the authors that have to wade through that minefield. The other thing that Ixalan's portrayal of Jace did is give us an iconic, story-focused, mono-blue planeswalker that made being a blue planeswalker look like fun. Jace on Ixalan was learning about himself, learning what he could do, and trying to figure out what the upper limits of that were, and exploring his new illusionary powers, and understanding what it means to be a telepath, and he was having the time of his life. This was a huge departure from the way that we used to look at Jace as kinda paranoid, kinda shifty, a cop. Like, he's put into this administrative role on Ravnica, and he kind of does the paperwork, but he also kind of doesn't like that he's in charge of objectively the best plane ever. When we got to Ixalan, we found a Jace that loved being blue, which is something that the other iconic planeswalkers for those colors have had for a while. I have a lot of complaints about Liliana, but she made being a necromancer look fun. When designing Magic 2019 and picking the planeswalkers for Magic 2019... R&D figured out that they had kind of a, a hole to fill with a green planeswalker. Nyssa had just pieced out from the Gatewatch. Can't really justify using her. Garrick, our original mono-green iconic planeswalker, has come down with a bit of sickness of the murdery sort and isn't quite mono-green anymore. So we need a green planeswalker that doesn't really fit into what either of those two did. We want to make her creature-focused. How do we approach making a green-focused character that cares about creatures? What kind of attitude do we give her? She loves them. Even the ones that are covered in spines. Even the ones that are gonna try to eat her. That's just what they do. That's who they are. That's a green philosophy. Acceptance of the natural order. And not just acceptance, but rejoicing in it. This is great. These things that are out here in nature that are gigantic and crazy... I love him! I'm gonna pet him! Bryce alluded to the Steve Irwin nature of Vivian's personality, and I 100% agree with that, and that is a perfect encapsulation of why I adore the way that she's being presented in this set. Being mono-green is fun again. Vivian is the conduit for that. And that is why she, her flavor text, and her cards are the number one thing that I love 
about Magic 2019. This is a nice mic, otherwise I'd drop it. (laughs) And that, dear listeners, is each of our top five favorite cards from Magic 2019. Let us know how you feel about this slightly different, what do we determine, brief functional errata to have partner between spoilers and some of our other segments. Well, Jacob, if someone wanted to know what the next creature is that you'll summon that they could pet, where might they go? They could find me anywhere they find somebody named Frogger, spelled P-H-R-A-W-G-E-R. That's Twitter, that's Tumblr, that's Reddit, and if it gives you any indication, it's probably going to be a Plaxcaster Frogling. And, Bryce, if someone wanted to reach you to complain about the fact that neither of our top five lists contained any Elder Dragons, where would they be able to find you? They would be able to find me with my Walls of Defenders. Walls of Walls? (laughs) They could find me behind my walls of defenders on Twitter as walking underscore Atlas, or you can email us at info at opalnebula.com. Also, here's my summary. Asmati is okay. It's a weird kind of group slug deck. Palladiumor is stompy with a cool take on Hexproof. Nickel Balls the Ravager is just cool because who doesn't love Flipwalkers? Chromium the Mutable is weird, but probably fine. And Arcades the Strategist is in my mind a little bit too good and should remove the card advantage so that he just focuses on defenders. <sighs> well done. For more Talking Atlas, find us on iTunes, Google Play, or our website, opalnebula.com. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard today, please consider finding us on Discord, the link to which will be in the description of this episode. Come hang out with us. We'll tell you what we think about the Elder Dragons, or what I think about the Elder Dragons. Spoiler, they're all fine. Or what I think, but slightly more slowly. Yeah. May you all find that core of excitement in what you enjoy doing. And until next time, happy planeswalking. <laughs>